my name is Tracy Cook and welcome to the podcast series Victim to Victory. This series gives a voice to those that have overcome obstacles in all forms, that dare greatly to share their real stories. Amazing humans that have seen hope and risen above those adversities to become victorious, but now support and inspire others to do the same. We have got an amazing, inspiring, insightful, real, brave person that is changing the world, that is leading communities and has a different perspective that he's going to share with us and an amazing story, an absolutely amazing story. His journey has been phenomenal. Um, I'm going to share a little bit before we welcome him on to Victim to Victory and his name is Justin C. Kurtz. Uh, Welcome to Victim to Victory. Thank you, Tracy. It's a great honour to be here this morning. You're very welcome. And I appreciate you getting up. Um, it's 5 a.m. Uh, while we're recording this. So we really appreciate <laughs> having a global podcast and all of our guests um, really um, stepping into that. Now, um, you know, uh, imagine this guy, okay? And he's met John Maxwell and Dan Penner, travelled from Canada to Costa Rica, California, and the Caribbean. He moved over 40 times watched 99% of his friends die starting at 19. Wow. Broke a wrist and back with no doctor's visit, walked 3,000 miles before eighth grade, was a competitive handgun shooter, professional model, and ran a successful coaching and real estate flipping business, built a sustainable off-grid cabin in full heart failure, unaware of a broken bat, with battery tools in six months using clay hand dug on site. Okay, phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. And um, working as a massage therapist now, ending uh, his need for disability using capitalism. Absolutely amazing. This is just a little bit of the story, Justin, and I'm absolutely intrigued because I know how amazing and unique your story is, yet it's so relatable as well. So who is Justin and where does where does your story start? So it started with an ambulance ride. Right? So when I was born, I was a Smurf. I was blue because I didn't have any oxygen and my heart was congenitally deformed. So you got two pumps in your heart, one pumps to the body, one pumps to the lungs, and mine were backwards. So there was just a circular loop. There was no oxygenated blood getting into my bloodstream. So they, you know, raced me to the hospital in an ambulance, and then they threw me in a helicopter because that didn't work and flew me to another hospital. So my first day was travel. (laughs) It It was visiting new places and doing exciting things, and I think that just stuck. Um... You know, I didn't want to, when you have such a weird thing, especially, you know, one in a hundred thousand kids are born with a similar heart defect. And, you know, of that, not very many make it. And then when you see people pass away and you understand what death and mortality really mean, it, it kind of inspires you to do a lot more. You know, most people, unfortunately, wait till their forties to realize I'm going to die someday. And I had the blessing of knowing it from day one. And I decided if I was going to live, I wanted to live a life that if somebody wrote a book, it would be worth reading. And so I had to fill that life with as much as I possibly could. And I just, you know, 
for all the hard things like the how did I walk 3,000 miles before eighth grade? Well, I walked to school every day and it was about a mile a day. And so mile there, mile back. So two miles a day, uh, do the math and it works out. And, you know, rain, sleet, snow, shine. I did it. And I, I, I'm a boomer. I had to do it uphill both ways. So I lived at the top of the hill and you went up and down and, you know, had to come back that same way. So it was uh, a different life. I, I had this small town, still kind of the 1950s style growing up, a farm community, a very tough, get the job done. You know, like I knew a gentleman who ran over his wife on the tractor and that field still has to get plowed and crops in and whatever, you know. So <clears throat> it, it was just one of those environments where if you hurt, you walk it off. So, mm-hmm. you know, somewhere along the line, I, I broke my back and uh, broken a wrist and who knows what else at this point. And, uh, you know, you just walk it off. So every day I had chest pain starting in about fifth grade where, you know, heart attack feeling, stabbing pains in your side. My arm would go a little numb. And that was around the time that we were really understanding heart disease. And so there was radio commercials all the time for heart drugs and what to do if you feel like you're having a heart attack. I'd be in there every day if I went into the hospital every time I felt like that. So it just made me a very uh, tough individual, I guess, but not necessarily in a kind and loving way. So, resilient? You know, would, used, would you class yourself as you know, resilient? A lot of grit. <clears throat> yeah, definitely a lot of grit, you know, because you still got to get to school. It doesn't matter that it's sleeting and freezing rain or whatever. And, you know, the buses are going to pass you and you, I, you know where I'm going. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I got good parents that, you know, as much as they could introduce me to a world of through competitive shooting and handgun competitions that I met people from literally all over the world. Uh, we had, bicathlon training and it was like kids racing bicycles and shooting air guns and at the time east and west germany were still split up and so i got to meet people from both sides of that uh, because they brought competitors over to compete in this international shooting event in my town of 1500 people in the middle of cornfields so it was it was pretty spectacular yeah you know i got to meet just you know the the nba level of professionals shooting and so come into that whole debate with a whole different perspective and um, through those meetings i got to work as a model uh, and did professional modeling for a little while basically as a kid doing the weekly flyers for a retail store that isn't in business anymore you know Uh, but that was my modeling years and uh, tried to expand that but I never got tall enough so <laughs> that mm-hmm. was that, that ended and uh you know did the college thing like I was supposed to but I didn't want to waste time because again I'm dying I don't have time to waste so I found a accelerated program and got my college done in about two years and went out and started traveling for a company that sent me all over the country every two weeks to six months I'd move somewhere different uh, did that for quite a while and then uh, started riding motorcycles and trying to figure out how to be something other than bouncing around from town to town all the time uh, and decided to be a hell's angel and ride motorcycles and do the whole biker gang thing and not really a gang, but the whole motorcycle club biker world. And uh, 
added that to my list of things to accomplish and then uh, started having some more heart problems and had to have two more open heart surgeries, basically back to back. Uh, they'd been debating because I'd had a leaky valve for a long time. That was what was causing a lot of the chest pain. And they said, well, we can try to fix that leak and see how you do. And 50% of the doctors didn't think I should do it. And 50% thought I should. So they had this big, you know, surgical council and they came back and said, well, we think you should decide. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Right. So, <laughs> we'll just leave know, it. Said, we'll just leave it to you to decide. <laughs> yeah, yeah, wow. Yeah. Forget about our expertise. So we're just as torn as you are. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's interesting because I got this giant set of scars down my chest and it's, it's torn me in half my whole life. I've always had this desire to be this strong, you know, masculine outdoorsman type person, but always had this defective heart. But emotionally, right, there's, there's the physical actual pump that's in your body heart. But then we talk about how oh, they've got a lot of heart, you know, that, that grit, that determination, whatever. I had plenty of that. <laughs> I wasn't lacking in that part, but physically I was having some issues. So they, uh, I decided to give it a shot. If I would feel better, that would be great. It'd be worth it. Uh, even if it was just for a day of feeling like I didn't have that limitation would be worth it. Oh, maybe not. <laughs> so I did that and uh, I felt awesome for a year and just, you know, rode. And I remember packing a wheelbarrow full of concrete and just like ah, feeling manly and normal, you know. And went in for a checkup just to establish service because I'd moved, <laughs> big shock, and uh, was down here in Arkansas the first time. And they're like, you're about to die. <laughs> like, we've got to get you in for surgery soon. Your heart is about four times its normal size right now, and you're about to explode. So that was not was I, what I was expecting to hear. Uh, so that changed things, and that's when I ended up with the mechanical valve. And, uh, in between those two open heart surgeries, they had, I still had a lot of like rhythm issues. And so they ended up doing an eight hour ablation surgery where they rewire your heart and scar it and do all this through your legs and just all the tests and everything that they do to determine whether or not they want to even do the surgery and how to do the surgery and sticking stuff down your throat and through your legs. And, uh, I had my those little arteries that you're growing cut open four or five times over the years. So uh, back to where I had my second heart surgery, they decided that I didn't need to be in the club anymore because that just wasn't the lifestyle for somebody in my health condition. Uh, and right around that same time, I started having just real bad joint problems and they diagnosed me with rheumatoid arthritis. And so I started doing just all this health care stuff and, went for a sleep study and I had uh, sleep issues where I was waking up like 300 times a night because I could never sleep because I had a broken back. Which 300. Yeah. Like I, when they did the sleep study, like I never actually sleep. I haven't slept Whoa. in, I don't know how many years, probably since the last surgery because I don't ever get into REM because my body wakes itself up in pain all the time because of what I've now learned is the broken back and just all the damage from being opened up for surgery. They don't ever send you for body therapy. They just send you for heart rehabilitation. Let's get your heart and these muscles maybe work back up in your chest, but they mm -hmm. don't ever think about what they did to your back or your spine or your 
your body. So I eventually I had a uh, chiropractor who traded some coaching and training and leadership stuff for chiropractic service. And he gave me way more than I gave him in value because for the first time I had somebody admit that there was something wrong, right? I was actually able to understand why I hurt. And the girl that did my intake, she actually cried because she's like, you shouldn't even be walking, let alone going around trying to encourage and coach and teach. So uh, that was, that was interesting to find out. So 75% of my back was in subluxation. Uh, so they did the spinal decompression and all that stuff and missed the, the broken vertebrae at the bottom of my back in that process, but got to feeling a whole lot better, but was still having a lot of leg pain. Also found out I'd had a dislocated leg. Uh, so some point I dislocated my leg and so I've been walking on that for, you know, five, 10 years, do it walking every day. My rehabilitation was to walk every day as much as I could through the woods and hike and find solace in the, the wilderness to rebuild myself and found out that my leg was dislocated. It wasn't just that I was being weenie. <laughs> you know, Justin, so. do you think that, yeah, I mean, just going back to your um, your childhood, you know, the tough kind of, I'll just walk it off, I oh, don't worry about it, you know, um, you're okay, just get on with it. Do you think that um, that 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 upbringing when you're a child, that's why you're walking around for five or ten years with a with a dislocated leg? Are you just kind of like, no, nah, I'm not going to think about it. I'm just going to get on with it. Do you think that stems back from your childhood as well? Well, just, you know, pain was just an everyday part of life. So, yeah, like with the hard stuff, you know, I just had to walk it off. Like I'd be sitting here talking like I am now and it might feel like somebody just took a spear and stabbed me right in the heart. And I just I have to keep functioning. You can't, you know, melt down and have an issue every time. Uh, and so my, my message that I'll share at the end will kind of explain a little bit why, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I just, and also money, you know, the healthcare, it costs and you got to go and go and go and you got to convince them. Like it takes convincing when I have actual heart problems. Like I have to go beat the doctors over the head to find what's wrong. Cause I know my body and I know when I don't feel right. And I know when I'm not up to par and I know what I should be able to do physically because I've done this a couple times now, Doc, you know. So mm-hmm. <clears throat> I, I got married and had a kid right around after the, the second surgery. So, you know, all the focus is on caring for people that were going to live, you know, because I wasn't supposed to be here that long. And though they did tell me for the first time after my third heart surgery, when I went on disability, when I felt the worst I'd ever felt physically or emotionally at that point, that I'd live another 20 years, that was not, uh, it was not good news at that time because I, I was ready to get out of here when I went into the surgery and, you know, you wake up because there's always that risk you're not going to and you wake back up, ah, shit, I'm still here. So what do I do with that? <clears throat> and I didn't want to sit on the couch and watch Maury Povich and play video games and, and be a schlub. Uh, so I started thinking about what can I do uh, because can't didn't do shit was what my dad always said. So <clears throat> I focused on being a can because I, if I was going to have a child, I didn't want them seeing their dad just sitting on the couch. That wasn't the way to raise a, a kid. And I knew how to read. And I was like, well, I can start reading for myself. And when I really realized that I could be in control of my own education, like I could program my own computer brain. 
I was, I didn't have to go to a school to have somebody else tell me what books to read. That was really just powerful. Like I never thought that way before. I thought I was a genius just for coming up with that. Uh, and then stumbled into professional development and leadership because when I was in the club, I was just kind of an ass and nobody really liked me. <laughs> and I had no influence with people the way I wanted to. You know, I had a lot of people outside of my charter that respected me and saw me do what I did. And But the people that interacted with me day to day or most often didn't as much, you know. So I came out of there with a couple of friends. But most of the people that I met that I became the most friends with were the ones that everybody else in the world thought were assholes, too. So, you know, <laughs> it was... Uh, it was kind of interesting always because they're like, oh, stay away from that guy. He's a real jerk. And then I'd be like, I love that guy. Man, him get along great. <laughs> so, uh, well, but it was always, a realization. always think that we um, that we see something in uh, someone else that we see in ourselves and we kind of mirror that and we're kind of drawn towards that as well. So, um, yeah. But I, I, I love it, Justin, how, um, you know, like you're just so real about your journey as well and you're saying it's so blasé, but it, it, it's powerful and it's an impactful and you've had so much um, so much happen to you, not only health-wise, but even for, um, and you said it yourself, you know, an outdoorsy, um, you know, a bloke, you know, um, that, that wants to really, um, you know, not have this this problem with his heart and just be, you know, the, the biggest man that he can then it's so brave for someone like yourself to step up because not many men do, right, and say, hey, you know, this is what I want to be like and this is what has held me back and I was a bit of an ass for a while but now I'm here. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think more than anything men really need to hear those messages because, you know, uh, they, they think that they have to be this big worldly blokey guy and, and save the day type of thing. And sometimes it's okay to go, you know what, I was a bit of an ass, and I, I kind of feel a bit vulnerable every now and again and wish I could be more, you know. Yeah. Um, and, no, I, re I really appreciate that because I think there's a lot of a lot of blokes that listen to this series as well um, that really need to hear that um, from a bloke as well. So, no, thanks for that. That's really a real great share. Yeah, I, I definitely as a man, you know, that was one of my biggest challenges was what, what am I? When I lost my ability to work, I wasn't in a club anymore, I didn't have any social thing outside of myself so you know I had no identity and you know being a stay-at-home dad was not an identity that I really wanted to walk around doing honestly so it was really difficult to kill off that drill sergeant that I had in my head that beat me up every day you know that's just recently happened so I haven't even got to I, I've just been doing the past I haven't even got to the present so once I started living intentionally I really started doing a lot you know I've been an Eagle Scout. I did a lot of stuff as a kid, but then after the third surgery, and I'm going to be a dad. I got real, real intentional. And that's when I started setting a lot. Like if I live 20 years, I'm going to set some big, hairy, crazy goals because I've never had 20 years. They've always just said, well, come back next year and we hope to see you, you know? <clears throat> and uh, I was like, I'm going to change the world. Well, if I can do all this and, you know, direct my own education, well, I'm going to, I'm going to start my own college and I'm going to do all sorts of crazy stuff. And so that was kind of the ambition. Uh, unfortunately, you know, I had to deal with the people around me, not believing that I could do what I said I would do, despite seeing me do a lot of things that I wasn't supposed to be able to do. And that really uh, held back and restricted a lot, but I still did a lot, you know, 
that was when I first set the idea of, of living more sustainably and just proving that I could do it. And if I could do it, then I could remove the excuses of everybody else. Because, you know, if, if a guy with bad hearts and you know, bad body is really not very intelligent when it comes to building or doing much of anything, honestly, because I always thought I was going to die. So, I, you know, school was easy. I can pass tests and get a grade. That doesn't really take a lot of work, especially in a tiny town. If you just did your homework, they were so damn happy you're going to get an A anyway. So, <clears throat> you know, uh, but really doing things, I didn't really feel like I had a lot of skill or talent because I always thought, well, I'll make money and pay someone else to do it or I won't worry about it. You know, I'm not going to own a vehicle for 20 years or a house for 20 years. <laughs> and now here I am having to worry about that again. <clears throat> uh, so yeah, just identifying, well, what does it mean to be a man in today's modern world has been tough. Uh, that's been probably one of the biggest struggles since the last surgery and the last 15 years of life. You know, I, I, I did okay as a coach. Um, you know, I made some money. I helped a lot of people. I gained some influence. I still struggle in that area. I'd like to be influencing more people and more direct about it. But prospecting and sales is not my forte. I'm a, I'm a much better, especially just where I'm at in life, I'm much better just show up and let me do what I do. Uh, being a massage therapist now is awesome because that's, a, that's considered an athletic performance to be able to be a massage therapist. So now I'm equivalent of the athletic performer at 43 when all my male counterparts for the most part have beer guts and diabetes and are starting to get heart problems. And I'm, I'm living my best life. I've built my house. I'm building another one. I uh, did it with my bare hands, you know, literally mudded the walls with my hands and still working on stuff, figuring everything out because I, I didn't, go and learn a whole lot from other people because, you know, that's not, I don't know. I just like doing things the hard way, I guess, to again, try to remove other people's excuses. Cause if I can do it, you can do it. And so what's your oh, excuse? I love that. Yeah. Love that. People don't. Yeah. <laughs> I have learned, you know, as, as you glow up and you do things, you know, the people you're around, eh, they don't necessarily like it because you remove their excuses. And I remove a lot of, lot of excuses for people like you know yeah I, I, under, I understand back pain i understand pain physical i you know i understand emotional pain just got divorced last year that's that's still tough uh you know i, I you got a 13 year old son as well yeah got a 13 year old son who is super duper smart and not near as ambitious and motivated as i would like him to be for his capabilities and it drives me crazy. I hate video games, but totally understand being a kid and just wanting to play your video games. He has had to move 16 times, I think, and he's 13. So wow. <clears throat> it's really difficult to give that kid a hard time. <laughs> he's yeah. pretty awesome. And he reads at a collegiate level and can do, you know, the mathematics he needs to do. Like we sit around and we were at breakfast one morning and we calculated how, what his profit margins would be if he started selling a similar sandwich and, you know, how much it would cost to make that sandwich and things like that. Like and so we just sit there and do stuff like that for fun. So, But isn't that great that you to... can talk to your son like that though, Justin? Like, you know what I mean? Like your dad yeah. was, you know, like a hard ass, like he said, you know. Yeah, and, and just not there. I mean, 
that was my dad worked on the road so he was gone sunday night till friday night and then he worked when he was home too he was either crop dusting as a second job or shooting competitively and so it was just a lot of you know you're just kind of there as a kid in those years you know nobody really wanted their kids around they were all just kind of about doing what they wanted to do and mm -hmm. so i just always treated my son when he was born like he was an alien visiting the planet it was up to me to help him figure out how to be a human and uh <clears throat> didn't want to be dishonest with him or not you know share things because again our generation that just come out of well you don't talk about anything mm -hmm. you don't talk about feelings you don't talk about emotions you don't talk about sex you don't talk about drugs you don't talk about alcohol you, know, you don't talk about nothing so i talk about everything I remember yeah. making a poor kid cry because we're listening to the news and radio and he asked about uh, nuclear bombs or something. And I told him the truth about nuclear weapons and nuclear proliferation. And all of a sudden I'm just driving around and I look in the rear view mirror and that poor kid is just bawling his eyes oh, out no. of the back seat. <laughs> Why do people have to be so evil? Oh. Yeah, it was but a lesson in maybe. So awesome to be honest with them, though. You know, that's something that probably a generation ago, there was no personal development books. There was no talking about, like no, you my, said, feelings. I mean, my parents had nothing. <laughs> Dr. Spock was it. You know, that was that was the only yeah. book. And a lot of people misinterpreted that to be never tell your kids no. Well, that didn't mean never deny your kids anything. It meant redirect them to things that are better for them. So we use redirection all the time now. You know, Johnny wants a candy bar. We'll say, well, how about this apple instead? Mm. <clears throat> That's all they were trying to talk about with that book. But most parents took it to mean, eh, just tell them yes to everything they want. Uh, mm -hmm. So, yeah, it was uh, definitely a different world. I don't, I don't have anything against what my parents did, what they could do with the information they had. And that's what bothers me today is we do have better information. Like I can, I understand the brain development cycle that my son's brain isn't going to be fully developed till he's 27. And that I'd be sure and remind him of that often. So don't make stupid decisions until your brain's fully developed and don't impact your brain's potential by making decisions on drugs and alcohol and love and, uh, you know, things of that nature until you get your brain right. Uh, you know, understanding where he is developmentally and being able to, work with him as a human being rather than some tyrannical parent that just controls this other little version of myself to be who I want him to be. So, sure. and especially as a dad, I think we, we struggle with our place as parents because society just has no place for us. You know, being a homeschool dad, like I was the only guy there always <laughs> just about. And so it was That's very great. awkward. And most I, people I are it. like, oh, dads aren't capable. Yeah. I took my son on a 4,000 mile road trip to potty train. We drove from oh. Missouri and we followed the uh, Oregon Trail and went up through Nebraska and into the Yellowstone and visited a friend up in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and then down through Idaho. We were supposed to go to California and I had a buddy out there that was going to take us to Disney World and all that. And I was too big a coward to drive through the desert with a two-year-old and heart disease just in case mm -hmm. something happened so we uh we cried all the way across kansas 
and scream for mom and I don't blame him because it was really boring and really <laughs> awful. So, uh, I love that how you said you potty trained him on the road. I yeah, love that. that. That was the reason for the trip was you know, you're going to learn how to do this and you're going to do it in a car and learn how to communicate because he learned real fast. He didn't like going to the bathroom on the side of the road. Uh-huh. And uh, he learned to tell me, you know, how to understand exits and things so that he could tell me, okay, I got to go you know, and we'd stop and we'd go every time. And so we just learned and he learned how to communicate and that was the end of that. So, and he was super easy to motivate as a kid. Like he had problems and there was always a fight getting dressed. And I'm like, all right, I tell you what, I'll, I'll take you to look Lego land, which is like a big deal. Uh, not very cheap to get in, whatever. So it was going to cost us a little bit of money. A week later, that kid was dressing himself and putting his shoes on and, you know, no problem because he had a goal in mind. So just finding that motivation for him has always worked. So right now, like if I told him I wanted him to do something and I bought him a gaming computer at the end of it, he'd probably do it. Now, he may not play with that computer after three months, but he would work like hell to get it. So it's it's interesting. But. Yeah, that was interesting as being a parent too, like just finding out that you can find out what their motivators are as well. Yeah, right. Like he has a personality and he was kind of born with the same personality profile as I did. And, you know, he has a love language like adults do. And, you know, just applying all that professional coworker behavior, like you wouldn't treat your coworkers the way we treat our families a lot of times. So just trying to treat our, our, loved ones like we worked with them <laughs> so that's great advice that's great yeah. advice i might share this with my family sometime <laughs> yeah yeah we, i mean we all need it but uh yeah sometimes we just forget because we get so comfortable in love we can abuse them and you know i don't i might love you but I, i'd like to like you at the end of the day too that's right yeah, definitely. And um, tell us a little bit about um, uh, meeting John John Maxwell as well. How did how did that come about? So I'd gotten involved with uh, reading books and realizing that my story was a potential for financial success and to solve my problem of well, who and what am I and why am I here? And started uh, with a network marketing company, which was really good, but. You know, there's always things that come with network marketing that aren't so good. <clears throat> uh, but coaching was just what I felt like I was drawn to do. And it was kind of before the craze of, you know, everybody and their brother doing that. So I joined the program and I was one of the early founders. And so I got to go to Orlando and meet with John and ask questions directly. And so that was a phenomenal experience to be in a room full of those kind of people just on the other side of meeting Sonny Barger, who's the head of the Hells Angel and hanging out with him and getting to meet him and have him sign books <laughs> and then going to meet John Maxwell and have him sign books and ask both of them questions and see leadership from both perspectives too, you know, because in the motorcycle club world, they're leading there's some quote that I can't remember exactly that Sonny talks about in his book, you know, but try to lead a whole bunch of alpha males with their own agenda. And they try to call us organized crime. Like we have a hard time getting a picnic together because, you know, we all got our own ideas. We all got our own agenda. We all, you know, we're all men with attitudes. So <clears throat> it was, 
But it, so, so what would be the similarities, John, do you think, in, in leadership, leadership type of things? I think it's all in that the attitude of how you carry yourself and how you treat people. I, as a lowly guy on the totem pole, that man still remembered my name after meeting him a couple of times. Uh, Sonny did. So, you know, this guy meets people all over, connects with people all over the world and still remembers the little guy's name, right? So John Maxwell will teach you the same thing. Now, who's the janitor? What's their name? Do you know Do you know people's name? Can you remember it? Can you recall them? Can you make them feel like they're important? That, I think, would be one of the biggest similarities. And then just that, you know, there is an energy and a uh, persona to a good leader, right? Like you can just see the body language and things change. <clears throat> they both lead international organizations of people that influence and have influence all over the world, you know? And mm -hmm. so the similarities are of personality type are definitely there and what they do, but just two vast ends of what the world sees as the perspective, you know? John's mm -hmm. leading people specifically to go be leaders to go add value to other people and to have influence and to, to do good things, but also to sell books and to put mm -hmm. butts in seats at events and to make himself money. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> On the other hand, you got a guy that just likes riding motorcycles and likes connecting with other guys that like riding motorcycles and they like to do it in a somewhat organized and fun and enthusiastic way together with other people who enjoy the same crazy lifestyle that they do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so <clears throat> very much the same people, but just different applications of the end result, which was influence. And so now mm -hmm. we live in a world of influencers. And it was kind of interesting to looking back at that time when I was getting out of the club, I didn't have any influence, didn't understand what influence was. Facebook was a new thing. It was barely kicking off and people were just starting to talk about it. You know, mm -hmm. so all of the social media influence world didn't exist. Uh, but now here we are where this platform being on a podcast, I get to share my story with somebody that lives on the other side of the world and hopefully influence other people to be more and to do more and to accomplish more and to have more and to do it with the goal of what if the world was a peaceful place mm. and you had to live in a world of peace, what would you do every day? Mm-hmm. What, what, you know, if, if the world had plenty of food, which we do, plenty of water, which we do, plenty of shelter, which we do, and you didn't have to go, uh, you know, pound pavement or whatever you do for work, what would you do with your time? Mm. I was blessed to kind of have that, you know, freedom. That's one thing, I guess, in favor of like a universal income concept would be that I had because of disability, the ability to care for myself for the first time ever. <clears throat> wow that's powerful i so, felt that justin that's really yeah, powerful i did too because i didn't realize that so having to take a moment here yeah for sure um uh, you know and they're, they're really strong words too because you know influence and 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 power isn't necessarily about control it's about um how you do one thing you do everything right and if you treat people as though you want to be treated, I remember being on a on a very fancy yacht once and um, lots and lots of very influential people on there. And one of the waiters spilt one of the plates on the on the floor and was so embarrassed. It's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm just going to. And the, the guy who owns this massive yacht, like 
multi-millionaire got up and helped him pick the, the food up off the floor. How you do one thing is how you do everything. And that's what yeah. you, that's that's your reputation. That's what people say about you when you're not in the room, right? Um, that's your integrity. And I think we've lost that somewhere along the way, you know, um, especially Character with social media. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's um, uh, just respect and um, integrity. And what you're known for, you know, your word, you know, your word is your word. And, um, you know, before social media kind of, and I'm glad you touched on it because before social media, you know, um, if you were to shake someone's hand, that was your word, right? Yeah. Well, now, now you can't do that. You got a fist bump. Like, how am I supposed to teach my son to introduce himself and be a man in a world where we fist bump? Mm. Your, your handshake was a definer. Like, I knew you, especially like in the club world, was was very much that way because it was all about are you a man like mm-hmm. the comment or your word is your what defines you as a man i was in a room one time with two massive i'm five eight five nine on a good day these guys were six plus 300 plus pounds i'm 150 uh you know and they're like big ass knife in their hand and you know what makes you a man i can cut your balls off is that what makes you a man you know, it's, it boils down to, do you do what you say you're going to do? And mm. again, women can do the same thing, but that's the defining thing because it's your character. It's who you say you are. That's what makes you that man. When you shake your hand and say, I'm going to do that, do you do it? I'm going to mm. give it my absolute all. I may not accomplish it, but I'm sure going to stubbornly continue to pursue it as long as I feel like it's worth pursuing. <laughs> So. And, and, and you're changing a lot of lives now too. So you've got out of the, the coaching space, I believe. Yeah, you know, I keep trying to find a way to, you know, sell and prospect online and it takes money and I'm always disappointed with the web developers. I just had to fire somebody again trying to manage my website. And it's like, you know, it's this isn't that complicated. I know because my son can write code. <laughs> like so let's uh you know yeah. if you tell me you're gonna do updates do the updates like if i say i don't like this you know and we all agree that this is the thing that we're gonna do that we should do that but um you know i'm still available to that uh through the buymeacoffee.com I, it's kind of my patreon-ish type website so you can just send support or if you really want me to coach and walk you through how to create a plan for your life and how to create a vision for your life. I'm really good at transformation. There's this great resignation going on right now. Everybody mm-hmm. wants to find themselves. And that's great because I'm, I already found myself and now I'm kind of bored with trying to help because I worked so hard to try to get people to listen and let me show them what I was going through and doing that. Now that I've really done it, really feel confident that it worked. I'm kind of like the, I just don't want to do that now. I want to, I want to, everybody else is leaving their job. I kind of want to go get one. yeah just I've never been the just stable guy to live in the same house and go to a job and have influence in the community Uh, you know go play music at the church and things of that nature you know so I'm thinking maybe that's how I want to spend a few years uh if I'm going to actually build my cabin and do all this work to be out there then I might as well figure out how to stick around so that's the first well, I think there'd be lots story. of people wanting to know how to build their own cabins and live off grid. So I think you found yeah. your niche there. 
Well, <laughs> uh, yeah, there's tons of people that can do it better than I can, but hopefully I can at least encourage those that think that they want to do it to just pull the trigger and go do it. What a life. You've led an extraordinary life, Justin, and thank you so much for for sharing uh, your journey and being um, really upfront and honest about it as well. And I really hope that the blokes that listen to Victim to Victory especially um, will really take stock of all of that as well because you are so real. And um, I learned a few more things about you uh, during this interview as well, which is absolutely phenomenal. And I just, um, you know, just can see bigger and better things, you know, for you. What kind of message would you like to leave the audience on today? Uh, just the message from my dad that can't didn't do shit. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So be a can. That's right. Don't be a can't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, beautiful. Well played, well played. I think there's a T-shirt. <laughs> That's got to be a T-shirt, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, thank you so much for being brave to share your story, Justin. We'll be sharing where to connect with you as well. You're so appreciated. And you can find the Victim to Victory podcast series on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, and our Facebook group. Please subscribe, share, and comment to help be the change that the world needs. Reach out and connect with Justin if he can help you in any way. Um, He's very open and receptacle to that. So please connect with him and let me leave you with a message of figure out who you are and do it on purpose. Thanks, Justin. Been a pleasure.